0: Buddhist Geeks, Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 259, Mapping the Mindful Brain. In this episode, we're joined by Yale researcher Judson Brewer to explore some exciting developments in the field of contemplative neuroscience. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, Please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined this morning by a very special guest. I'm here today with Judson Brewer. Judson, it's awesome to have you on the show. You're the epitome of a Buddhist Geek, I have to say. Uh, So this is going to be a fun conversation, I think.
1: Oh, thanks. I'm blushing.
0: (laughs) Exactly. Um, A little bit of background uh, on Judson. Judson is an assistant professor at Yale. He's in the Department of Psychiatry. He's also what we might call a contemplative scientist. Uh, We'll get into what that means. But you've basically combined uh, an interest in science and psychology. Psychiatry started off in how do you say this? Imm- immunology? <laughs> That's right, yeah. <laughs> okay. And then you've moved recently toward like the kind of neuroscience end of things. Um, and then you also have been a longtime mindfulness practitioner um, and Buddhist practitioner. So today we're going to kind of explore what's happening as a result of these two areas of interest and in the research you're doing. Um, but first, I thought it'd be cool just to find out how you got into the contemplative science racket. Because uh, this is a pretty newly emerging field, isn't it?
1: Yes, it is. It is. And, and a very, um, really an amazing time to be alive. All these conditions have come together in a really amazing fashion. Um, I'll give you the 30-second version, which was I went through a really bad breakup right before I started medical school. And for the first time in my life, was having trouble sleeping. And somehow, uh, John Cubott Zinn's full catastrophe living uh, landed in my lap. And, um, I read some of the book, but more, uh, started meditating, listening to his cassette tapes. And I remember my first day of medical school, I started meditating and I fell asleep for about six months, uh, listening to the tapes (laughs) and then found that I, during lectures in medical school that weren't particularly interesting, I would find myself paying attention to my breath, um, and things started rolling from there. There was a sangha in um, in St. Louis where I was in medical school. Started sitting with them. Um, went on my first uh, retreat. Bonti G was my first retreat teacher. Oh, yeah. um, the uh, the manager there, Ginny uh, Morgan, ended up being my uh, teacher for about uh, 12 years or so. Um and so everything just started rolling from there. And I was, you know, I was doing uh, immunology research uh, with, with mice. And by the end of grad school, I had been practicing enough that I didn't feel comfortable uh, doing any more mouse research. Not that I'm making any judgment call one way or another, um, but just for myself, I didn't feel uh, comfortable. So I stopped. And when I started residency in psychiatry, I had to figure out how to retool and what to do. And in undergrad, I was very interested in the brain and um, didn't really find a lab that I was uh, a pure neuroscience lab in grad school that I wanted to work in. So I would kind of done this hybrid lab um, work where we looked at the effects of the stress on the immune system and so started just retooling in in, uh, residency where I uh, joined the neuroscience research training program at Yale where we had a little bit of protected time to foster and develop research projects and so started learning neuroscience uh, neuroimaging uh, started running you know ran my first clinical trial for mindfulness training for people with addictions during residency and things just kind of uh, took off from there so it's been a, a long and winding road but very interesting for me
0: very cool and you know I know one of the big um, institutes and one of the big Um, supporters of contemplative science has been the Mind and Life Institute. I was wondering if you had run across them in your work or if they were part of of your process.
1: Yes, I remember during residency, I somehow finagled a couple of days off to go down to Washington, D.C. when the Dalai Lama was speaking. And this was the first time I'd heard of the Mind and Life Institute. And so I don't know if that was 2006 or something, but I remember meeting John Teasdale there and was just really enamored because, you know, my practice, I'd been practicing about 10 years at that point. And, you know, I I was really excited about seeing uh, science, this actually come into the scientific realm and become to be a little more accepted in in general scientific circles. And so I went, I, I immediately applied for the Summer Research Institute that winter and went um, that was the first institute I went to and I applied for a Varela grant actually and that started uh, my career. Um, we studied um, whether mindfulness training could help people with alcohol and cocaine dependence. Um, and so, yeah, I, I owe a lot to The Mind and Life in terms of getting me started, um, having some initial research funding and meeting quite a few of my collaborators and now good friends um, through that network. You know. We just had a fabulous time at the um, their uh, contemplative uh, conference in Denver. We basically hung out until about 3 in the morning every night just talking Dharma. It was really fun.
0: Oh, man, that sounds awesome. And, you know, you're, you're mentioning some of the things that we want to explore today. You're mentioning some of the, the early clinical trials that you did mm-hmm. uh, with mindfulness and, and addiction. And then I understand there's also some other stuff you're working on now that's also really interesting. Um, so I was wondering if we could maybe get an overview of some of the research you're doing and have done, and also some of the areas that you think are most interesting and most relevant to the Buddhist geeks.
1: Sure, sure. So one thing that I noticed during residency was that uh, people with addictions were speaking the same language as the Buddha, craving, uh, clinging, wanting. And so this was an underserved population and one that uh, not that many people were interested in in kind of touching. Um And it's a difficult field for, you know, addictions are are really difficult to treat. Um, So we did a a couple of trials there just to see if we could get a signal. You know, we wanted to see if mindfulness training would actually work. And it seemed to work pretty well. And we were even seeing physiologic changes. We were studying heart rate variability and then started studying um, neural changes um, with mindfulness training with these clinical populations. um, We had a really strong positive finding in our smoking cessation trial. It outperformed the American Lung Association's freedom from smoking, which is one of the gold standard treatments. We found a clinical signal that we believed um, and thought we could go with. And with that, we said, well, now let's go back and look at the neural mechanisms. What's actually going on? So we did a study where we uh, took a lot of Teravadin or insight practitioners, I shouldn't say a lot, there were about 12 of them, <laughs> with who had a lot of experience on average, about 10,000 hours of practice. And we compared their neural activity uh, to those of novices who we trained in the techniques that morning, uh, the morning of their scans. Now, as, as I'm sure everybody listening knows, the instructions are simple, you know, pay attention to your breath, but they're maddeningly hard to do. Um, so simple, but hard. And so it's really easy to teach somebody but it's not that easy to change your brain is that would be my guess and so we compared their brain activity and we had them do three different types of meditation we looked to see what was similar among all three and the hypothesis would be that you should see something you know some common neural substrate that's that's showing some movement one way or another and we were a little surprised when we analyzed the data. We didn't see much activity in the brain, like increased activity in experienced meditators, but we saw some specific brain regions that had deactivation patterns. And when we looked more closely at these, it was fascinating. We were pleasantly surprised to see that there two of the main brain regions that were deactivated, and on whole, there were only about four or five that uh, survived statistical thresholds, but two of those... We're part of the default mode network. And the default mode network is particularly interesting because it's all about me. And so it fits the theory um, that this practice uh, is about very, very well. So, you know, if what's the way we Wei way quote, why are you so unhappy? Because 99% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself and there isn't one. <laughs> nice. And so this default mode network, it's called the default mode network because it was discovered to be active when people were just laying still and they were doing these quote-unquote control tasks of don't do anything in particular. Well, guess what we don't do in particular when we're not doing anything in particular? What we're doing is we're thinking about ourselves <laughs> all the time.
0: I don't know what you're talking about.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, and for those those out there that might also have no idea what I'm talking about, This actually is present about 50% of our waking lives. So there was a study at Harvard that's well-known now, um, done by Matt Killingsworth, where they probed people throughout the day, and they found that 50% of the time, people's minds were wandering. And typically, when they were wandering, they weren't very happy. And and typically, it's this self-referential stuff. There was a more recent study that just came out this year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, where somebody actually gave people a choice of monetary reward or um, to disclose about (laughs) themselves. Guess what they chose? (laughs) I'd say the latter. Yes, they would rather talk about themselves than earn money. And in fact, when they when they imaged people that were doing this, their self-referential uh, default mode network uh, was activated and also the reward centers of the brain, the nucleus accumbens was activated. So it's rewarding to talk about yourself, which is probably why Facebook is worth 100 billion or 50 billion or whatever it's worth now. It's worth all this money because it provides um, one. You get to talk about yourself. What am I doing? Here are pictures of me. Here's this and that. It also provides gossip. Gossip is sticky. You know what are other people doing? And it also it does this in an intermittent uh, reinforcement fashion, which is the most reinforcing type of learning. So it happens at random times. You don't know. It's not on a regular schedule. So. All of that is uh, uh, many tangents away from the original question, which is why were we interested in the default mode network and why were we so excited to see deactivation in the default mode network in experienced meditators? Now, I'll just briefly mention that we saw deactivation, especially in the posterior cingulate cortex in, during all three meditations, so whether it was loving kindness, or concentration, pay attention to the breath, or choiceless awareness, where you're just receptive to whatever's arising in awareness. All three of them deactivated that brain network. So we were pretty excited to see that, and it fits beautifully with the theory. And I, uh, you know, Wei-Wu-Wei is probably laughing somewhere. <laughs> Everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. So when we activate these brain regions, you know, we create we create problems. And the meditators were, you know, on average, they're deactivating them. And, you know, I won't go into all the details, but we also found that they seem to change their default mode. So these folks um, were activating self-monitoring regions and also co-activating cognitive control regions whenever the self-referential networks were coming online. So it was kind of like that whack-a-mole. You can think of it this way. I don't know if this is really true. But it's like, you know, the monitoring is there. And then whenever self comes online, it whacks it. Bam. You know, and so this is where it might be where the cognitive control regions are. You could think of it as in a less violent um, analogy as just letting go. Oh, there's self, it's nothing, and we don't feed it. So if you think of the Upadana, um, you know, of the feeding part, you don't feed the self, and then it just arises, it's not a problem, and it it fades away very quickly.
0: Very interesting. And when you say cognitive control, that that sounds similar in some ways to the Buddhist terminology of, like, mindfulness. Is, Is that sort of an accurate connection there?
1: Well, it depends on what you mean by mindfulness. So if you go by the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, there are five different elements that encompass this. And so you could look at the fifth one, which is uh, removing basically craving and aversion with regard to the world. Um, You'd have to ask Jake Davis or some of the other Pali scholars about the the actual uh, terminology there. But the short of it is... When it arises, you that may be where the cognitive control regions come back in and say, oh, that's your old habit. Let go of that. Let go of that. And so the cognitive control could be simply notice what you're doing and now let go instead of being caught up in it. Yeah. It may be different at different stages of practice. Sometimes people maybe need a more active process at the beginning of practice, at the end when people are very equanimous and there's equanimity all throughout it it could just be the noticing and noticing and really there's not a lot of cognitive control that needs to be there because you're already in your new
0: habit pattern okay gotcha so some really interesting stuff coming out of this research Uh, and this was your earliest research right in in terms of uh, seeing deactivation patterns in certain areas of the brain that's really cool and were you one of the first folks to see that trend or were there other people also discovering that
1: well, a lot of people had reported and published uh, papers. You know, I think Richie Davidson's group was one of the first to publish with neural activity patterns in the brain. People had been publishing different things for a while, um, but there seemed to be a bloom. Um, this is like a, a Dharma bloom, like an algae bloom in 2011. Um, so, Veronique Taylor up in Montreal uh, published a paper where she had mindfulness practitioners view images like uh, pictures of that are affectively laden like people you know you get sucked into something and she found that this uh, same network was de or was less active in experienced meditators when they were viewing pictures so that paper came out just before ours and also Giuseppe Pagnoni just published a paper in 2012 where he showed that the same posterior cingulate region when it is basically on average deactivated um, this in Zen practitioners, this correlates with improved performance on a uh, rapid visual information processing task on a different day. And so he started bringing together um, this neural activity with actual behavior. So there's a glut of stuff that's coming out that's starting to be to really converge on the same, you know, these same regions. I'll often m- mention that there was a, a psilocybin paper that was published in, in early this year that was very interesting. This is out of a group out of London, and they found when you give psilocybin, which is like a sledgehammer, <laughs> that they also got uh, deactivation of these same network nodes, and they saw up to twenty percent signal change decrease. So uh, this is a it's like a sledgehammer. Um, so you know, kind of throwing someone in selflessness. Um, mm-hmm. So all of these data seem to be converging on this network as being very important here. And I'll also mention, we were just trying to convert, and this is where we can start to geek out a little bit. We were trying to just confirm our, our, our results because, you know, lots of people published stuff before we did. How do we know our stuff's any good? Um, and right when we were analyzing our data, all these other papers hadn't come out yet. And so we started using real-time feedback as a way just to bring this first and third person perspective a little closer to each other. You know the observer effects always going to be there. So by observing, you're going to affect the result, but you can at least bring them closer together a, temporally. You know, in a time manner. So what we were having people do was um, just meditate with their eyes open and let this graph of their brain activity that they were they could look at just it be in the background and every now and then um, check in with the graph to see if it was correlating with their experience we were looking specifically at the posterior cingulate, we were finding that, that it was really uh, well correlated, correlated very highly with people's experience. So when it was active, they were doing something self-referential or mind wandering. When it was deactive, they were concentrated or some even described it being in the flow state. Um, And so it correlated very well, but the more interesting, and this is where we can geek out, the more interesting part was that some of these novices were learning to meditate, like learning to make their brains look like experienced meditators in literally nine minutes. And so, you know, they would get out of the scanner and they would go, wow, when can I come back? (laughs) (laughs) And our technologist would say, that was so cool. When are you bringing in your next subject? You know, so there was something happening that was serendipitous because we were asking them, do not use this as feedback. We just want to use this as a way to confirm our brain regions. But they couldn't help themselves. You know, it's like they were learning stuff and they were learning things like, oh, you know, Pasadi, tranquility, that fifth factor of awakening. It's necessary. (laughs) You need to be in a relaxed, receptive mode of being when you're being mindful. This isn't about pushing anything. Now, I wish I knew that 10 years ago when I was striving my butt off. <laughs> you know, that would be very helpful. And these guys this is where somebody was learned this in 9 minutes. Oh, I was paying attention but it was red. Oh, I just relaxed and it was so it was super blue after that. There was another one that showed um, read a lot of red in one of the runs and he said it shouldn't have been red. I was thinking about my breath. And then the next run it was very blue. And so he just completely turned that region off. And we said, "What would you do?" And he said, "Oh, well, I noticed the difference between thinking about my breath and feeling it physically. So this is really where, it, you know, we can talk about embodied practice, but you can't tell if somebody's doing embodied practice just by looking at them. You know, they could be taking a nap. They could be thinking about Hawaii. They could be doing whatever. But it, it's harder for them to lie to themselves, you know. And so we were starting to see, wait a minute. These guys are learning this stuff really quickly and at least learning the, you know, what is the, Joseph Goldstein talks about this Chanule quote, um, sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. And so the idea here is you can show somebody what it feels like, literally, what it feels like, what the experience is to have, you know, to drop that self-referential processing. And then they can learn to do that perhaps offline and come back and, you know, and check it, you know, every now and then or use neural feedback as a way to help confirm that they're doing this practice correctly. You know, think of a yoga practitioner. Um, Somebody could be doing a Rodney Yee video for 10 years and say, you know, I'm the best Rodney Yee yoga dude in the world. And then they go to Rodney Yee and Rodney Yee says, what are you doing? (laughs) Well, I just followed your video. And Rodney could say, well, drop your hips, do this, do this, relax, whatever. Well, you can't pop somebody's head open and say, ah, Katsu, you're not meditating. You know? thinking about the breath rather than feeling it physically.
0: Awesome. So, so you guys, in a certain way, stumbled upon the profundity of, of the live feedback in terms of a learning uh, tool. Absolutely. Yes. That's awesome. That's really cool. And, th- and that's one of the really exciting, in my mind, the really exciting things about your research, because uh, like a lot of research, it may actually have some really amazing implications for uh, the kind of average meditator one day. So so g- going into another area, um, you're working on something called the Contemplative Development Mapping Project as well. Yes. And, and we spoke to one of your uh, kind of colleagues and friends, uh, Willoughby Britton, on the show, and she mentioned a little bit about this. And I know also because I've done a lot of practice in the insight world, and some of my teachers have been folks that you've had come and sit in the fMRI machines, and I've heard a lot about what it's like from their perspective. I'm really curious as to what you're doing and how it's going.
1: Sure. Well, you should come and visit.
0: <laughs> I, w- I want to.
1: That's the best way to know. <laughs> um, so with the with the CDMP, which Willoughby is really spearheaded, and it's it's just so fun because you get to you, you get to think about. Dharma is your work. You know, it's just really, really great fun. And with you know, with the goal of actually using this as a way to help people, you know, God forbid we actually help people with some of this stuff. So Willoughby brought us together and she said, you know, she'd been working on a lot of different projects. Um, and some of them, like one of them, her Dark Knight project, having to do with looking at the some of the later jnanas in the Mahasi traditions um mapping where they look at the stages of insight. And um, we got together and, and started thinking about, well, can we actually start to map this stuff? Because it would be really helpful and very interesting to see if people's brains change with, you know, let's say, um, you know, what's an, one of the most obvious ones would probably be uh, stream entry, for example. Um, or can you look at, you know, what happens next? Can you look at these types of things? So we start, we, we got together. And so Willoughby headed this up. Um, Jake Davis, who is a former monk under Upandita Um, and a Poly scholar um, was part of this, Jared Lindahl, and Chris Kaplan, also, who's been working with Willoughby. There have been a number of folks involved in in various aspects of this, and we came together, and Willoughby might have mentioned this, so I don't want to be too redundant, but came together and really had, we had first had a retreat for a couple of days together, and then um, had a small conference where we just started outlining these the methodology and the feasibility of doing this type of stuff. And Jared did this beautiful job of, of bringing a, a number of different traditions, maps together to see how they lined up. So we could ask the fundamental question, can we actually map this stuff? And, you know, not as a way of, hey, check me out, the, you know, I'm, I'm an I'm a <laughs> onagami or whatever, but as a way of saying, well, what happens to the brain? And can we use this as a way to mark progress so, when people are practicing, they can see if that practice is useful. You know, like um, who was it? Vince Lombardi who said, uh, Practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. And so, if somebody's doing practice for a long time, it'd be helpful for them to know if it's actually helpful. And if we can map whether people are making progress, then we might be able to use that information to give people a snapshot as to whether the practice that they're doing is helpful. Now that's a lot of third-person type stuff. Ultimately, it comes down to: well, are you a jerk? <laughs> are you less of a jerk? Are you happy? Are you happier? You know, are you are you more content? Are you more at ease with things? And so, I think ultimately this does come down to um, you know first-person experience. But we can look to see how that first-person experience correlates with some of these uh, brain activity patterns and other ways of looking at things as well. I, brain activity is just where my main interest is, so I, I will be brain-centric here. But it, it, there are many things that we
0: can look at. Right, right. So, so there's m- multiple kind of ways of looking at it. You you mentioned the the like the skin response stuff and heart variability and all those other things. I'm curious. Is is your sense that there are patterns that play out that are kind of correspond to some of these kind of ancient uh descriptions of, of subjective patterns what's your sense of that and what are you and what are you finding
1: yeah. <laughs> let me say we met over new year's and the um i think the consensus was wow this is gonna be difficult <laughs> So we're just now still trying to bring together some ways to um, get self-report measures of where people report they are with stages, because everybody has their own map and everybody has their own idea of what a map is, et cetera, and then use that as a way to move forward with looking at, you know, what do people very far along look like? So we've got some preliminary data from folks that seem to be, um, you know, have practiced like their hair's on fire. Um, and be living in a way that seems to be with much less suffering and much less self um, going on. But I can't say anything yet because we haven't really, you know, we haven't really nailed the the basic premise, which is, can we do this? Now, we think we can, but we need to refine that a little bit more before we really go and trust any of our analyses or or start doing any specific analyses where we say, okay, now we can test this hypothesis based on this. So we, again, have this first-person, third-person problem where we need to bring those together more before we can start actually doing the analysis that we trust.
0: Okay, cool. And I'm curious, because you said that, wow, this is going to be really difficult. What are the biggest difficulties in something like this from, 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 from a researcher's point of view?
1: Well, it'd be great to know it, across traditions, if there was some common marker. Like, um, what's a good marker? So, if you have Two X chromosomes, good likelihood that you're going to phenotypically look like a female. You've got one X and one Y, good likelihood that you might look like Vince. So that's a good marker where you can say, okay, here's, you know, we've got this thing, which is uh, X, you know, sex chromosomes, and this leads to this phenotype. Now, that's one of the hardest things because as Jared was finding and, and describing so eloquently is that these maps don't line up very well. They just don't line up very well. Whether it's you know one, if they just don't. And this is just within Buddhism. Um, he didn't even look beyond into Christian contemplative, et cetera. So that's a whole nother ballgame. But the idea would be, regardless of tradition, you know, they can all be different fingers pointing at the moon, um, and it doesn't matter. But we should see some commonality there, regardless of which finger you're using to point at the moon. Um, so that's the hardest thing is we're still shaking our head and trying to figure out what is going to be a good marker that we can all trust and agree on so that we can then use that as a way to, OK, have you, have you made it into this bucket or are you still at this bucket, regardless of tradition? And then we can scan and see if their brains are different. We're very binary in science. You know, um, is it this bucket one or zero, this bucket or this bucket, you know, pleasant, unpleasant, all that?
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So, what, so what sounds like one of the main difficulties is in uh, finding and agreeing upon actual common understanding of of what this these different Buddhist techniques and practices are actually leading toward.
1: Yeah, and in preliminary steps along the way, like yes. what does stream entry look like, even in different traditions? You know, what what might that look like? Whether you use the word stream entry or something else, or you know, Kensho or whatever, you know um and what how can we define that in a way that everybody agrees on this and it's regardless of tradition like what does that look like phenotypically or you know from somebody's um <laughs> from somebody's first person experience which of course is is going to be biased by the, an interpretation by the self
0: very interesting and it, it seems like you know from an outsider looking in you know who's spent more of more of their time you know in the the contemplative side of the street that this would be really challenging because in a way you're having to probably come up with a new language to describe some of these things i imagine because if you just take one tradition like you just say take the insight tradition of the theravada tradition and you just try to like sort of fit everything else into that mm-hmm. um, that clearly isn't going to work in a certain way so what I you're what you end up having to just do it sounds like is come up with a new language or a new uh, way of modeling this stuff, and and that's that sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> yeah, it is,
1: um, but it's worth it. And and the idea is, can we come up with universal language, universal terminology that everybody can say, oh yeah, yeah, that's what we call this, but we everybody agrees that that is something that's real. And and one difficulty here is that. You know, even when we come up with this stuff, somebody could study the uh, the Cliff's notes and say, "Oh yeah, 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 I've got that." And you know, it's like they publish the koans in <laughs> in the Zen tradition. Well, you know, somebody could come and and recite the koans, and that's where the teachers come in and differentiate. You know, somebody's just reciting koan answers versus they're really embodying it. And that's a little harder to do with some supposed, you know, uh, objective questionnaire that we're trying to develop. So it may be a combination where we have a screening questionnaire, and then that, you know, that gets backed up with some type of an interview. But then the question is, who does the interview? And this and that. You can see that it gets very complicated very quickly.
0: Okay, great, thank you. And and I'm wondering, you know, assuming that you're able to make progress on this, as you hope. What, what do you think the implications of something like that would be, a, a contemplative uh, map that's sort of independent of, of religious traditions and has some actual... Uh, has some more, I guess, complex ways of um, assessing? You know, like you said, with the fMRI thing, you can't really lie when you see the red thing, you know, popping up. That's It's difficult to lie to yourself, whereas it's, it's easy... Uh, to lie to ourselves and to other people without even intentionally doing it. Right. Yeah. So so I'm curious, what what are the implications of something like that in your mind?
1: Well, hopefully it could be useful in a way to, again, give people feedback as to, you know, somebody says, oh, yeah, I'm selfless. And we could say, oh, yeah, get in the scanner. <laughs> and we actually had somebody um, who kind of demonstrated this for us where they said, you know, I just, I just try to spend my time uh, being in the moment all the time. And we said, OK, get in the scanner. And he got in the scanner and said, and we said, OK, be in the moment. And you could watch his brain activity get more red, more red, more red as it was getting you know, more self-referential, more self-referential. And so that can give people a check as to what, you know, what they mean by um, being in the moment all the time. And so what we did with him, for example, was we said, OK, just do four things. And right, so he's in the scanner, it was all red. And he said, okay, just do four things. When seeing, just note seeing. When hearing, just note hearing. When feeling in the body, just note feeling. And when thinking, just note feeling. Or when thinking, just note thinking. Can you do that? Yes, okay. We turned it on again, and he went from red to blue. And so you can do things to show people, you know, people say, oh yeah, I'm enlightened. (laughs) Which is usually a red flag when somebody comes knocking on my door. Oh yeah, I'm enlightened, scan me. Okay. Um, let, let's get a little more information here. Well, this could be an objective way to, for people to learn whether they do have things hidden in the closet. And we've had some ex- examples of very experienced practitioners come into the scanner and just you know meditate and then see these little tiny red blips. And there was one in particular who said, oh, I noticed these little red blips and I didn't think anything of them. i have been seeing these for 10 years. And, but the scanner made me look for them. Um, And she said, well, you know, I realized that there was there was this image that would pop into my head and I didn't think it was a problem. It was just an image. I wasn't even in it. But there was this desolate feel to the image. And I noticed that there was a subjectivity. There was this affective, desolate feel that was that was self-referential. That was me. And I hadn't noticed that before. And she'd been practicing for 10, 15 years and said, oh, you know, thank you. That was really helpful because I could see a little, you know, a little thing that hadn't been uprooted. And, you know, when you can see it, it's much easier to uproot it or let it go. So these types of things can be objective feedback that can really be helpful for people in a, and sometimes in a very sobering
0: way. Two things that come to mind as you're describing this. One is you're, you're talking about an increase in efficacy of, of these practices and their aims, both with the live fMRI stuff. You know, people actually, like novices, learning how to meditate uh, rapidly, like within nine minutes, which is amazing. And then, you know, even for more advanced practitioners, these little blips uh, that they hadn't really, like, registered before as being something to investigate or look at, and that being something that increases efficacy. So it sounds like one thing you're talking about is an increase in efficacy that could come out of some of the work you're doing, which I find really fascinating. And then the other piece is, you know, when something is translated into a language of science, uh, when when you're talking about you know deactivating the selfing, for some reason that connects a lot more with the average person, uh, very clearly connects a lot more with people. So if there's something in what you're doing that to me also speaks to uh, to scaling or to sharing this with a broader population. Like there's the implications of this seem twofold: efficacy and then also like broader appeal. So I'm curious if you've reflected on, on these, th- or what your reflections on these things have been, um, because it doesn't seem insignificant, um, what you're what you're describing. So
1: let's start with the second one, and then you can remind me what the first one is. So looking at this, uh, in terms of this science, you know, this language of science, uh, I really think that science, and this is just my opinion, um, but science is really viewed as a religion in the West. You know, people see it on, on the news, and they say, you know, scientists... Did, did this. And everybody says, guess what's true? <laughs> and the scientists are like, oh, my God, they completely misquoted me. So the idea here is that there's some faith that is engendered. And I think of this as evidence-based faith. So if we really look at our own experience moment to moment to moment, we get enough evidence every moment when we're causing suffering and when we're not. And if, if we can see it clearly enough, there's evidence-based faith, bam, right there. But for a lot of people, seeing their own brains for whatever reason is really helpful in in engendering evidence-based faith. And so I've actually done this with some of my patients where they'd come into my office and we're doing something, whether it's working with anxiety or we're working with smoking or whatever. And I show them, you know, I say, okay, here's this noting practice. And I don't even talk about Buddhism or anything. You don't need to say, you know, this is something that we've done to help people quit smoking. What you need, when you have a craving, see if you can note it so you can ride it out, you know? So if it's burning, clenching, tightness, and really keep it embodied, and then I show them these pictures and I say, you know, here is – because we've had people doing noting practice in the scanner and guess, you know, it's blue. It's It deactivates the PCC. So, you know, I say, look, here's here's somebody just lying there in the scanner and it's all red. And then I, we just teach them these simple noting practice and look what their brain looks like, you know, and it's just completely deactivated. And they, they go, wow, that okay, I'll practice. <laughs> and so for some reason that's enough to light a fire under their butt that this isn't just some other – Joker psychiatrist telling them some other thing to do, it can actually change their brains, and that's something that is very palatable and and maybe engenders you know enough of that spark to have them go out and practice so they can develop their own evidence base, so they get their own evidence based faith, which is all they need, you know. And then you're you're gonna you're not gonna stop, you know, when you see that Santa Claus isn't real, <laughs> you, <laughs> it's not like you can go back and pretend that you didn't see that. <laughs>
0: And, and then the other piece around, around efficacy, what do you think about that? What, is, what are the implications?
1: Well, again, it goes back to this practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect. You can imagine it could help us do things correctly. And the more you practice things correctly, the better you're going to get at them more quickly. And so people are going to see – they're going I imagine that they would start to see um, progress in their own – progress toward the decreasing of suffering. They'd see this much more quickly for themselves and they would see maybe that they're becoming less of a jerk more quickly. And they would see that, Oh, I can really see what this flow state feels like and I can drop into it. And Oh, now I know what that feels like. So I can, it's much easier for them to drop into that. And then that in itself is rewarding. And so the efficacy builds on itself using our own natural reward-based learning. You know, you can think of it as if they're looking for the – just make sure you you see what the trigger is, which is stress, and then notice what it feels like when you let go. It's like the joy of letting go. And the joy of letting go in itself can be a reward. And part of that is when they see feedback and see that their brain is changing, they can trust that that joy is joy that should be fostered as compared to stuff that like excitement, which often we – You know, we say, well, I was excited. Maybe that's happiness. And in in reality, until they realize that that's just dopaminergic, um, you know, samsaric garbage, they're going to keep doing the excitement stuff because they don't know anything that's better as compared to when they notice the joy, they can see with the feedback, oh, yeah, this is what you should be aiming for. Okay, good. I can keep doing that. And I can trust that. And that's where the faith comes in. But again, this is a lot of this is theoretical. This is where we'll be testing to see if this is actually true.
0: Okay, cool. And then maybe, maybe like a wrap-up question, um, because this is Buddhist geeks. You know, we also want to explore um, the implications for quote-unquote Buddhism, uh, which is a big topic by, in and of itself. But what do you, what do you think some of this might mean for the Buddhist tradition moving forward?
1: Well, it, it could mean a lot of different things depending on someone's conditioning. I know that's a cop-out answer. So, for example, I, the first thing that pops into my head is, well, let's see how attached people are to their concepts. <laughs> so somebody might say, oh, that stuff shouldn't work or it can't work. It shouldn't replace a teacher. Well, my question would be, how do you know? We haven't been in this moment in history before where we've had technology and we've had we've been exposed to a lot of different teachings. And I'm not saying that this will replace teachers or practice at all. This isn't an enlightenment machine. This is just feedback that can augment the process. And so in this sense, you know, you might see reactions to it where people would say, this is not traditional Buddhism. And I would say, so what? I'm not calling it traditional Buddhism. We're just calling it feedback. You know, if you're driving off the road, do you want to know it or not? (laughs) Who cares what you call it? Are you, are you about to go into a ditch or not? And I would like to know if I'm about to drive into a ditch. That would be very helpful for me, you know? So one thing it might have implications on is whether people are or have a aversive reaction to this and that would be interesting another would be you know how can when we get more creative when we say well how can we actually combine this with teachings because also never before in history have we had well of course we've never had this moment before but if we take we take all of this exposure to different teachings and this ready access via the internet and via books and via you know Buddhist geeks and stuff like this, where people can really be exposed to a lot of different trainings, we can start to be creative and we can say, how can this type of feedback be helpful for this type of training that we're doing, for noting practice that we're doing, for, you know, this type of thing that, um, you know, that's being, uh, what did you call it? Uh, Appified, you know, we're appifying this type of practice. Well, can we use feedback to see one if the apps work? You know, because there are a lot of apps out there and some might be better than others, you know? We want to know that, you know, is, is my car going to drive off the lot or is, are you selling me a lemon? I want to know this. You know, we don't have that much time. Every moment is precious. So I think it's our responsibility to, one, you know, see how this fits with the teachings and also for the people that are putting the teachings out there to be brutally honest and say, you know, I should really check to see if this works, because there's a lot of stuff that's not evidence-based. And somebody says, I have a great app. And it might be a great app. It might be the best app in the world, but we don't know it until we test it. And this might be a way to help vet some of this stuff quickly, which would be good because a lot of I think a lot of these uh, apps are going to come online faster and faster and faster.